We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 99 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Chase Young episode, a perfect way to end our run of dedicating episodes to Washington players, past and present. It is Friday, July 9th, 2021, the day after the Phoenix Suns took a 2-0 lead on the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA Finals, 118-108, the final. Devin Booker, just tremendous, 7-12 on threes. This also is the day after a horrendous loss for the Nationals. There's no other way to say this. A 9-8 loss at the San Diego Padres. Late night on Thursday night, the Nats blowing an 8-0 fourth inning lead. There is a ton to talk about with that game. Talk about it, I shall. Coming up next segment, we pull no punches on this podcast. If you want fanboy state-run Nats talk, go elsewhere. If you want real Nats talk, you get that right here. We're going to keep it real next segment with the Nationals. Special guest on the show, pro football focus lead fantasy football analyst Ian Horditz, who has had a lot to say recently about the Washington football team. Even if you're not a fantasy football player, you're going to appreciate what Ian has to talk about here. And if you're a fantasy football player, then you're going to really enjoy my conversation with Ian. He has ranked William Jackson III as the best shadow corner in the NFL since 2019. What is a shadow corner? What are we to make of this ranking? Ian will explain, as well as talk about his extreme optimism for Washington's offense this coming season. Ian is a big believer in Ryan Fitzpatrick, Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, and Antonio Gibson. Hardcore football talk regarding the Washington football team is coming up. We had big news in D.C. sports on Thursday. Rafael Nadal is coming to town. Yes, Rafa, he will play in the 2021 City Open at Rock Creek Park Tennis Center in Washington, D.C. A terrific development. I want to talk about this. Uh, No game for the Orioles on Thursday night. Their game three against the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Rained out. Will be made up as part of a doubleheader on September 11th. So next week will be another vacation week. 
And I, again, am putting vacation in quotation marks. I'll still be doing shows. I'll just only be doing three shows, as was the case last week, not the normal five shows. Because as you likely know, this podcast is not a once a week or twice a week or thrice a week enterprise. This is every day, Monday through Friday, out by 5 a.m. But for next week, as a quote-unquote vacation week, expect shows three days during the week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But if major news breaks, I will adjust. As I have said, if the Washington football team trades for Aaron Rodgers, I'll do a show for the next day, okay? I'll go ahead and, uh, and do that. But look, my vacation week last week included the team naming Tanya Snyder as co-CEO on Tuesday, and then the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation coming out on Thursday. So I was very glad that I did do shows during that vacation week with, again, vacation in quotation marks. Who knows what'll happen next week? It does set up to be one of the quieter weeks on the sports calendar as we have MLB's All-Star break. Although we could get the Wizards, right, finally hiring their next head coach. Some news on that, by the way, on Thursday. USA Today NBA insider Jeff Zilgit on Thursday reported that the Wizards were to conduct their second interview with Denver Nuggets associate head coach Wes Unseld Jr. on Thursday and a second interview with Dallas Mavericks assistant coach Jamal Mosley on Friday. But ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski on Thursday evening reported that the Orlando Magic was closing in on Mosley and that he was emerging as the strong front runner to be the Magic's next head coach. Also on Thursday, by the way, was NBA insider Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports reporting that the Wizards recently interviewed Charlotte Hornets assistant coach Ronald Norred for a second time, even though the reporting has been that Norred is taking a job with the Indiana Pacers. So there's a lot going on here. You may recall it was on Monday that Woj reported that the Wizards head coaching search had narrowed to several NBA assistant coaches with whom the Wizards would be speaking again in the coming week. Uh, These assistants per Woj included Unseld, Mosley, and two Milwaukee Bucks assistant coaches in Darvin Ham, a former Wizards player, and Charles Lee. So a lot of moving pieces in this Wizards head coaching search. It would seem as if we're going to get resolution soon. I mean, the NBA draft is coming up, uh, but three shows next week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Also next week, the start of my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team as we begin our countdown to training camp, the first day for which will be July 27th. A reminder to uh, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Costs you nothing, means everything. And especially if you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a one-sentence review saying how much you like the podcast. These things help out a lot in terms of this podcast doing well. So I appreciate your help with these things. You can always tweet me your thoughts on anything and everything at Al Galdi is how you can find me on Twitter. You can email me as well. I get so many great emails on our topics that we discuss. Uh, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Steve Ott on the name of the team now known as the Washington football team. I During last Friday's show, episode 95, gave you my reflections on the name change and all that went into it on the one-year anniversary of the weekend that changed everything, July 4th weekend, 2020. And I asked you for your thoughts. Right, Stephen? Love the pod. Never listened to a podcast before, but I am now a regular streamer. Well, thank you, Stephen. Uh, For me, right, Stephen, football is ruined. I've been a fan since 1975, 
and only missed a handful of games in that time. I don't see a difference in the team and the name. They are the Redskins. Always have been and always will be. The team is gone, in my opinion. The history is now considered racist, and when they tore all the logos down at the park and the stadium, they tore my fandom apart. 44 had a Redskins logo on his helmet when he took the handoff for six on fourth and one in Super Bowl 17. 17 had a Redskins logo on his helmet when he hit 83 with a perfect pass for six in Super Bowl 22. Yes, that was a perfect pass. Coach Joe had an R on his hat, not a W, when he led the team to 17 wins and a Lombardi at Super Bowl 26. The history of my team is all about Redskins, the proud warrior nation. Redskins nation is now Washington football team nation? How stupid. I was so proud to be a fan of this team. Now the passion is gone. I watched the games in 2020 and just didn't really care anymore. The stupid numbers on the helmets, they have no identity and look stupid. I've decided to not spend money on the team anymore. I think I'm at the age that marketing types don't really care about anyway. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, that is a powerful email. And Steve, I respect the heck out of how you feel. I respect the heck out of where you're coming from. As I have said, I don't blame anyone for how he or she has reacted to the name change. There is no right or wrong way to have reacted to this. Personally, the name change hasn't affected my fandom, even though there is still a lot about the name change that doesn't sit right with me. But for me, being a fan has never been about the name. Being a fan to me at its core is about memories, excitement, and hope. Being a fan is about abstract things like what you remember about your team, what you have experienced with your team, how you feel about your team, what you think about your team. Being a fan to me is not about specific people or even, say, a specific team name. But that's me. We're all different. We all have our perspectives. Well, someone with a high-level perspective on all things is Dr. George Verghese. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland really does great work, diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401. You can also visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. 
Com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. Perhaps the worst loss of the national season happened late night on Thursday night. A brutal, gut-wrenching loss. The kind of loss that should never happen, but inevitably does happen over the course of of a 162-game baseball season. The Nats blew an 8-0 fourth-inning lead, a 9-8 loss at the San Diego Padres for a four-game split in the series. Nine unanswered runs by the Pods in this game on Thursday night. The Nats' win expectancy per fan graphs when Trey Turner hit a one-out, two-run homer to center field of Padres reliever Daniel Camarena. More on him in a bit in the top of the fourth for the 8 nothing Nats lead was 98.5%. The Nats had a 98.5% chance of winning this game at that moment. And yet, the Nats ended up losing this game. To paraphrase what Denny Green said many years ago, the Padres are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. But they are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. Yeah, the Nats let the Padres off the hook. A wild and crazy game with a terrible outcome. Also on Thursday night, the National League East leading New York Mets game against the Pittsburgh Pirates postponed due to rain. The Philadelphia Phillies won at the Chicago Cubs 8-0. So the Nats now are 42-44, and tied with the Atlanta Braves for third in the NL East. Four and a half games behind the Mets, half game behind the Phillies for second. I could not stand what Davey Martinez did in the bottom of the ninth on Thursday night. And let me say, I like Davey. I like Davey a lot, okay? I have fun with Davey, but I think Davey Martinez is a good manager. He's obviously a World Series winning manager. And one of the things that I really do like about Davey is that he is open to progressive ways of doing things. He is open to analytics. Remember, Davey Martinez was Joe Madden's right-hand man for years, first with the Tampa Bay Rays, then with the Chicago Cubs. Davey Martinez is not some guy who's stuck in, you know, 1989 in terms of baseball strategy. And so to see Davey handle the bottom of the ninth, how Davey handled it on Thursday night was perplexing and was highly disappointing. What I'm talking about here is Davey bringing in Sam Clay as opposed to Brad Hand. As men on films used to say on In Living Color, I hated it. Hated it. Yeah, I hated it. Davey Martinez brought in Sam Clay and not Brad Hand in the bottom of the ninth inning with the game tied at eight. But it's not just that. Davey Martinez brought in Sam Clay and not Brad Hand in the bottom of the ninth inning with the game tied at eight and with the Padres top of the order coming up to bat. Hated it. The Padres numbers one, two, and three hitters were coming up. This is not bringing in Sam Clay with the Padres, say, seven, eight, and nine batters coming up. This was bringing in Sam Clay with the Padres, one, two, and three batters coming up. Sam Clay came into this game with an ERA plus of 80 on the season. Brad Hand for this game had an ERA plus of 156 
on the season. 100 is average. Above 100 is good. Below 100 is bad. Sam Clay again at 80. Brad Hand again at 156. There's no conversation here about who the better option was. Davey Martinez saved Brad Hand for a spot that never came up. Davey Martinez saved Brad Hand for, say, the 10th inning, but we never got to the 10th inning. And so the justification of this of, well, who's going to pitch in the 10th inning? I don't want to hear that. Get to the 10th inning first and then worry about the 10th inning. And if you have to use Sam Clay there, well, then so be it. But at least you know you fired your weapon in that ninth inning. See, that's the thing. Brad Hand is a high leverage weapon to be deployed wherever you see fit. He's not your closer. He's your ace reliever. You deploy your ace where and when you want. That ninth inning, tied at eight, Padres top of the order coming up. That's where you fire that bullet. That's where you deploy that weapon. And Davey didn't do that. And I could not stand that watching that game. And the decision did not work out. Uh, Sam Clay gave up a leadoff single to Tommy Pham, a two-out intentional walk to Manny Machado, and a two-out full-count walk-off single to Trent Grisham. Now, it's not like Sam Clay got tattooed. It's not like Sam Clay gave up, you know, three doubles or anything like that. But Sam Clay got got. He gave up a run in that inning, and the Nationals ended up losing this game with Brad Hand, the team's best reliever, never throwing a single pitch. This is inexcusable. And this is the kind of thing, and let's be honest about this, this is the kind of thing that if Dusty Baker did it, he'd be crucified for. So it's only fair that we hold Davey Martinez to the same standard. And again, Davey's a good manager. He's got a World Series ring. I hope that he at the very least internally says, you know, I probably could have handled that better. But I could not stand the way that Davey handled that bottom of the ninth inning from a strategery standpoint. Strategery. Yes, strategery. Speaking of the strategery, by the way, in that bottom of the ninth inning, also in that inning was complete defensive indifference by the Nats. Now, you have in baseball what is officially defensive indifference when a team just like allows a guy to steal a base. But this was the ultimate indifference in terms of defensive indifference as the Nats literally allowed Machado to like lightly jog to second base. Now, you might say, well, it didn't matter because you had a runner on third and the game was tied at eight. So if the runner on third scores, then that's the end of the game. I hear you. But Machado in going from first to second removed a force out at second base. You had runners at the corners. The Nats, with their defensive indifference, allowed Machado to, again, just like lightly jog, briskly jog to second base. You lost the force out at second base with, again, a guy in Sam Clay who's a ground ball pitcher. Uh, I didn't like that strategy by the Nationals in that bottom of the ninth inning. Well, a man whose strategery you never have to question is John Grandland of Real Broker. You know, John the other day told me of listeners of the Al Galdi podcast listing their homes with John. He said, Galdi, you can use your Davey Martinez proud of the boys drop when you say that. Well, it's a good thing because I sure as heck can't use that drop for Davey or the Nats on this show after that came on Thursday night. I'm proud of the boys. Yeah, exactly. But we are proud of the boys listing their homes with John Grandland. And you should list your home too with John if, in fact, you are trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going or you need to sell your home and you aren't sure to whom to turn. Contact John Grandland, a.k.a. John G., and see what he can do for you. John Grandland is the best. He has a mastery of the DMV real estate market. And he offers something that's very special and very unique. We like to call it commission flex. 
You are familiar by now, surely, with Ron Rivera's affinity for position flex. Well, John Grandland has commission flex. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same commission? If your house is going to sell in five minutes, you shouldn't have to pay the same commission as someone whose home is going to take a while to sell and require far more work from the real estate agent. The whole idea of like, it's a flat fee commission no matter what, that's ridiculous. That's antiquated. Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan specific for you a plan that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Granlin offers a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin to sell your home guaranteed. Yes, he guarantees the sale of your home. You can call John Grandlin at 703-537-6747. Become the next Al Galdi podcast listener to list his or her home with John Grandlin. When you call John, tell him that Al Galdi sent you and tell him, hey, I want to learn more about this commission flex thing that I keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast. That phone number again is 703-537-6747. John's a great guy, big Nats fan, big Washington football team fan, very easy to talk to, great sense of humor. You can also check him out online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And always remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, just like position flex. Well, I wonder how Ron Rivera would have handled that bottom of the ninth inning at the Padres on Thursday night. And look, I am sympathetic to Davey Martinez in that he had to, again, use his bullpen a bunch in that game on Thursday night. Five Nats relievers ended up being utilized in this 9-8 loss at the Padres. The five relievers combined officially to allow two runs in five innings, but Nats relievers also continue to have issues with allowing inherited runners to score. This has become kind of a sneaky, nagging thing with the Nats bullpen lately. So Kyle Finnegan officially tossed one and a third scoreless innings. He relieved Max Scherzer, and boy, we'll get to him momentarily, in what was a Padres seven-run fourth inning, allowed an inherited runner to score in giving up a two-out RBI single to Fernando Tatis Jr. Now, that was a function of a terrible defensive moment for the Nationals, as Juan Soto should have called off, Josh Bell didn't do so. But still, Finnegan allowed the inherited runner to score. Wander Suero got charged with a run in two-thirds of an inning because Austin Voth allowed an inherited runner to score. Voth officially tossed one and a third scoreless innings, but he came into the game two outs, bottom of the six, gave up an RBI double to the first batter he faced, Tommy Pham, to tie the game at eight, completing the Nats' blowing of an 8 nothing fourth inning lead. It was good to see Daniel Hudson back. He tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth. It was not good to see Sam Clay and not Brad Hand face the top of the Padres lineup with the game tied at eight in the bottom of the ninth inning. But yeah, five Nats relievers had to be used on Thursday night because Max Scherzer stunningly got shelled. So first of all, the pitching matchup for this game on Thursday night was, at least on paper, a great one. Max versus the Padres ace, Hugh Darvish. Very exciting pitching matchup. 
The pitching matchup ended up being a complete flop. Neither guy lasted for even four innings. Max Scherzer ultimately allowed seven runs in three and two-thirds innings on 91 pitches. He gave up five hits, two homers, a double, and two singles. He only issued one walk, but he also issued two hit-by-pitches. He did have seven strikeouts. See, that's the thing. Max initially looked great. Three scoreless innings, and then came a total unraveling in a seven-run Padres fourth inning, during which Max gave up a leadoff homer to Fernando Tatis Jr., a one-out hit-by-pitch of Manny Machado on a 1-2 pitch, a one-out single by Trent Grisham, a one-out hit-by-pitch of Eric Hosmer, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12, a one-out bases-loaded walk of Will Myers, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02, then the ultimate humiliation, a two-out grand slam by Padres reliever Daniel Camarena to right field on a 1-2 pitch. Forget this. Camarena's first career hit. The Padres relief pitcher, who had never had a hit in his career, gets a hit off Max Scherzer. It's a grand slam with two outs and on a 1-2 pitch. And the homer was a no-doubter. The homer went a projected 416 feet per stat cast. This was stunning to see Max Scherzer give up that homer, just like it was stunning to see Max Scherzer completely come apart at the seams like this. And Max wasn't done. He then gave up another extra base hit, a two-out double by Tommy Pham. This was strange. This was obviously so out of character for Max. He was having such a great season, 16 starts this season coming into the game, ERA at 210, whip of 0.85. This was Max's fourth start since coming off the 10-day injured list, which he was on due to the groin inflammation. And while he hadn't necessarily lasted long, he had been effective. It was not an issue of Max having not pitched well. It just didn't last long in any of those three games. And then in this game, Max doesn't even make it through four despite having looked so good through three. That's what's so strange. It's not like this was a night for which you say, well, Max just didn't have it. No, he did have it. And then all of a sudden, he didn't have it. This is odd. I don't know if the groin is still bothering him, and maybe that's why he wasn't lasting longer into games. But like I said, he was pitching well in those games. Maybe this is just something that happens, and Max Scherzer is a human being, even though sometimes we wonder about that with how great he's been, and he just had a bad night. But this was a really bad night. And this was not like a normal, quote-unquote, bad night. This was a great night that morphed into an atrocious night, and in like a blink of an eye. That was a mess, that seven-run fourth inning. The shame of all this is that the Nats' offense was great again on Thursday night. You know, the Padres came into the series seventh in the majors in FIP, which is fielding independent pitching. That's an ERA-like number that only looks at that which a pitcher, in theory, truly controls. So home runs allowed, walks allowed, hit by pitches allowed, and strikeouts. Padres came into the series seventh in the majors in FIP. Padres also came into the series having been one of the better defensive teams in the majors this season, although we didn't always necessarily see that in this series. The Nats, of course, are without Kyle Schwarber. And yet the Nats, over the four games uh, in this series, all taking place right at Petco Park, a notorious pitcher's park, scored 34 runs. The Nats offense did an awesome job over the four games in this series, and that continued on Thursday night. Trey Turner, 
back in this series, right? He missed all four games of the Nats, four-game sweep to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park. And then Trey is back for all four games in this series. And isn't it funny how things change? The Nats get swept by the Dodgers at home. Offense looks largely lifeless. Trey comes back. Nats split four games at the Padres. And the offense looks great. Trey is such a difference maker for the Nats. We've seen this over the years. We certainly saw this in 2019. And Trey Turner ends up being the Nats starting shortstop and number two batter in all four games in the series. As David Martinez used the same lineup for all four games in the series. Not often we've said that this season. Trey, another big game on Thursday night. Three for five with two homers and a single. He had a one-out solo homer to left field off the Padres' supposed ace, Hugh Darvish, in the Nats' three-run first. Turner had a first-pitch leadoff single and a stolen base in the Nats' three-run third. And Turner had a one-out two-run homer to center field off the aforementioned Daniel Camarena in the top of the fourth for an 8 nothing Nats lead. That home run going a projected 411 feet per stat cast. Turner in the series, 7 for 19 with three homers, four singles, and a walk. Juan Soto on Thursday night, 2 for 3 with two singles and two walks. Reach base four times. Soto had a one-out single in the Nats' three-run first, a single in the Nats' three-run third, a leadoff eight-pitch walk in the top of the seventh, despite having been down in the count of 1.12, and a two-out six-pitch walk off the ex-Nat Mark Melanson in the top of the ninth, despite having been down in that count at 1.02, as Soto was Soto shuffling a bunch during that plate appearance. That was a lot of fun to watch. Soto go from down 0-2 to then working the walk and Soto shuffling all the way through. Uh, Soto starting right fielder, number three batter in all four games in the series. A good series for him. Six for 14 with two homers, four singles, and four walks. Josh Bell had another big hit. RBI double on a 1-2 pitch in the Nats' three-run third, and yet another instance this season of Josh Bell doing well despite having two strikes on him. Bell, the Nats' starting first baseman and number four batter in all four games in the series. We did not see Ryan Zimmerman start a single game. Bell, seven for 20 in the series, with a homer, two doubles, and four singles. Starling Castro had another good game on Thursday night. Two for three with a double and a single. Castro had a two-out double in the Nats' three-run first. RBI sack fly in the Nats' three-run third, and a two-out single in the top of the seventh. Castro, the Nats' starting third baseman and number five batter in all four games in the series, seven for 17 with two doubles, five singles, and a walk. Jan Gomes had a two-out, two-run single in the Nats' three-run first. He had a good series, was the Nats' starting catcher, number six batter in all four games. Josh Harrison had a two-out RBI single on an 0-2 pitch in the Nats' three-run third. He had a good series, was the Nats' starting left fielder at number seven batter in all four games. Alcides Escobar, a one-out single in the Nats' two-run fourth, despite having been down to the count at 1.02, as again, Escobar is able to to work a plate appearance in which he is down 0-2 or 1-2 into a favorable plate appearance. Alcides was the Nats starting second baseman and number one batter in all four games in the series. How about this guy? Six games with the Nats. He has a batting average of 346. He has an on-base percentage of 393. Remember the Nats just this past Saturday acquired Alcides Escobar. Got him from the Kansas City Royals for cash considerations. This is Escobar's age 34 season. He had not played in a major league game since 2018, and yet he's come through for the Nats here to the tune of an on-base percentage of, again, 393 over six games so far. I also do want to mention Victor Robles, who was not good offensively, again, on Thursday night. Uh, Your starting center fielder, number eight batter in all four games. He went 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts on Thursday night, but Robles twice more robbed Jake Cronenworth 
of the Padres. This was hysterical. Victor Robles, who has been excellent defensively again this season, robbed Jake Cronenworth three times in this series, including twice on Thursday night, during which Robles made a diving backhanded catch in shallow left center field to rob Cronenworth of a hit for the third out in the bottom of the first. Robles made a terrific diving forward underhanded catch of a Cronenworth liner in shallow center field for the first out in the bottom of the seventh. Uh, You also had in the 7-4 Nats loss at the Padres on Tuesday night, Robles in that game making a spectacular diving backhanded catch in the left center field gap to, yes, Rob Cronenworth of a hit for the first out in the bottom of the seventh inning. So I know Robles has been brutal offensively this year, but Robles defensively has been tremendous. And we certainly saw that on display over the course of this series. Just ask Jake Cronenworth. So next up for the Nats, a three-game series at, oh yeah, the major league leading San Francisco Giants. Things are just so tough for the Nats right now in terms of one good team after another, this trip out west. I mean, you know, this is what happens over the course of a season. I'm not uh, telling anyone to shed tears here for the Nationals, but this is a rough spot, a rough stretch that the Nats are in. And now, no Joe Ross for the Nats. In another instance of someone surprisingly being placed on the Nats' 10-day injured list, we had the Nats on Thursday surprisingly placing Joe Ross on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to July 7th with right elbow inflammation. The Nats recalled reliever Ryan Harper from AAA Rochester. Uh, This is not believed to be something super serious with Joe Ross. I think the anticipation is that he'll miss his final start in the pre-All-Star break portion of the season and then be good to go post the All-Star break. But, you know, you don't know until you know. Joe Ross is out now with right elbow inflammation. And so it looks like the Nationals' three starting pitchers for the series that the Giants will be. Paolo Espino for Game 1, Friday night, 945. Technically, TBA for Game 2, Saturday afternoon at 405, although it looks like that will be John Lester's game. And then Eric Fetty will start Game 3, Sunday afternoon, at 405. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
right, inside of three weeks are we from Washington football team training camp, which will begin on Tuesday, July 27th. Among the many intriguing storylines for camp will be the three biggest additions for Washington in free agency this offseason. Quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick, receiver Curtis Samuel, and corner William Jackson III. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, pro football focus lead fantasy football analyst Ian Harditz who in two recent articles has had a lot of good stuff regarding the Washington football team, including on Fitzpatrick, Samuel, and Jackson. Ian, it's nice to have you on. How are you? Doing great, man. Appreciate you having me. And yeah, you know, it's we always got some one off the field thing or another coming up with the Washington football team. But I think on paper, man, a lot of things to be excited about this year. Fitzmagic's walking around with, you know, a cicada in his beard. We got some ex-Ohio State Buckeyes, which has a Columbus, Ohio lifer I'm always uh, excited about out wide. And, of course, maybe just the next big thing at the running back position, Antonio Gibson. So always down to talk some ball in July, man. Thanks for having me on. Oh, nice. I'll ask you about Dwayne Haskins later on in our conversation. <laughs> there we go. But uh, <laughs> before we get to that, I'd like to begin with your piece on the best and worst shadow corners since 2019. Fascinating read. You ranked William Jackson III as the best shadow corner since 2019. Before we get to Jackson, if you could just define shadow. Yeah, so basically, and this is with all due respect to William Jackson, I think he's an excellent corner, but you see the guys that were popping up in the study, William Jackson 1, Jason McCourty 2, Malcolm Butler 3, Stephon Gilmore 4, and then, you know, it doesn't necessarily reflect who I think the best corners in the league are. Again, William Jackson's very good, but... In terms of shadowing, basically, it's the one kind of matchup we get on an NFL field that is the most one-on-one, I think, throughout a game. Defensive linemen are always moving around, getting double teamed. Uh, You know, running backs are getting guarded by whoever. Tight ends getting guarded by whoever. Occasionally, though, we do get these guys that will travel with one single receiver. Now, I guess my main kind of conclusion in this article, though, was that... This just doesn't happen enough for us to be a main fantasy football takeaway. And the one example I used uh, to kind of demonstrate this is even when we talk about these shadow uh, situations, you know, Jalen Ramsey matching up with Devontae Adams in the uh, NFC uh, divisional round. Like they were barking before the game and Adams was saying, like, don't hide from me. Follow me everywhere. Because you see these shadow matchups where guys, they don't fall into the slot. And then at that point, it only ends up being about, you know, 60, 70 percent of their snaps. And what the kind of game, I guess, that really brought my eyes onto this because I've been doing a wide receiver cornerback article every week in season for the last three or four years so I'm pretty familiar with which corners do and don't shadow and it was actually against uh, the Washington football team in 2018 OBJ versus Josh Norman you know it was always appointment television to make it that one but basically Norman quote-unquote shadowed Beckham on 68 percent of his routes that's a pretty normal rate we see and Beckham did not catch a single pass against Josh Norman now, Beckham finished with eight catches for 136 yards when he happened to be moving inside to the slot. And for those purposes in fantasy land, it just doesn't matter as much. So William Jackson did come out in first. Basically, the way I calculated the whole article was just taking, we have cool things at PFF, we can take the expected points from targets. So I just took every single shadow matchup over the past two years, took the receiver's expected points, and then what they actually ended up with. So credit to William Jackson, man. And in those shadow matchups in 2020 in particular, man, he was balling. He only did it five times, but faced off against T.Y. Houghton, Terry McLaurin, Darius Slayton, Devontae Parker, Amari Cooper. Only Amari Cooper scored a touchdown, and only McLaurin managed to get more than even 55 receiving yards. So 
I'm not super convinced Washington is going to be asking him to do that part of his game as much uh, this year in 2021, but it's okay, man. As long as that pass rush keeps doing what they're doing, I think he'll be just fine taking away his side of the field. Yeah, uh, I'm with you on that. With a shadow matchup, though, is there a minimum number of routes on which the corner is with the receiver? It's the lowest one that we'll kind of track would be 50, and then usually, like I said, it's between 60-70% okay. more times than not. Every once in a while, we see someone, you know, credit to Jalen Ramsey, uh, Darius Slay, and Stephon Gilmore. Those are the only three cornerbacks that consistently will move inside to the slot against these guys. Uh, Marlon Humphrey did it for a little bit with the Ravens, but after they acquired uh, Marcus Peters, they've actually not been using their corners to shadow as much uh, in recent memory. So, that's the big differentiator, man. I mean, I understand, you know, when you have great cornerbacks out there yeah you don't necessarily want to test them but it's just so hard to kind of predict when they're even going to be on these receivers like we've we've heard people say Jalen Ramsey is DK Metcalf's kryptonite because he hasn't done anything in his coverage and hey you know Ramsey has been winning those battles for sure that didn't stop Metcalf from catching two touchdowns and having 95 yards in the uh, divisional round so I say it about five times in the article man but the end of the story moral of the story start your studs we just don't know enough about these matchups to be able to have a super uh, you know discerning opinion about it in fantasy land. Yeah, and, and that makes total sense. So it sounds like with William Jackson the third, he rated well, but the sample size was just too tiny to really put too much stock into this. He's awesome, man. I'm not trying to really uh, take anything away from him. I'm just saying when we see someone like Malcolm Butler popping at the top of this list, I just think it kind of shows you uh, some of the issues with putting too much stock in it. As a tiebreaker, I think it's fine if you have your wide receiver 15 facing off against William Jackson and the wide receiver 16 is facing you know, the Lions or something. Okay, let's go ahead and start the guy uh, with the easier matchup. Just more than a tiebreaker, though, I think uh, it gets a little iffy. The one interesting part, I think, was uh, someone that uh, Washington fans won't be surprised actually finished dead last and that was Josh Norman obviously wasn't asked to do it uh, too much with the Buffalo Bills but man oh man he was just becoming a punching bag for a bit uh, in that 2019 season they got him off that assignment pretty quick uh, it's, it's a shame man you know we've seen it with uh, you know I think Patrick Peterson and even Richard Richard Sherman's I think his age probably better than almost any of these guys but hey, you know it, it's not really a position where uh, old guys were able to stay with it as well as uh, they once were so I don't want to hate on Josh uh, too much he was fantastic in those Panthers days but certainly hasn't been a great uh, twilight in terms of a shadow uh, success. Yeah, and that is the point. Norman was great with the Panthers. Washington paid him $15 million per year, and uh, things didn't go so well. But it's interesting you bring up Norman because I did want to ask you this. So one of the big reasons for Josh's success with Carolina was that Carolina used him a lot in zone coverage. Norman comes to Washington, and Washington doesn't employ nearly as much zone coverage with Josh. He ends up getting exposed. Washington did use a lot of zone coverage last season, but the thinking is that now, especially with William Jackson, the third Washington will be using more man coverage in 2021. With the studies that Pro Football Focus has done, has PFF been able to gather whether man coverage or zone coverage in general is better when it comes to defending the pass? I know an issue like this is largely circumstance dependent, player dependent, but is there an overall trend with this issue? I would say the one big trend that popped up last year I found most interesting is uh, just kind of 
the NFL defense is realizing how much of a pass-first uh, league it is now and just putting more resources in the secondary. What Brandon Staley was doing with the Los Angeles Rams was they were just playing too high more than any other team. So I think, you know, you still need to be diverse. You still need to mix up man and zone. To answer your exact question, no, I don't have it off the top of my head exactly, you know, man versus zone, which one. But the one big takeaway we saw was once you have that too high set, if you're able to still control the line of scrimmage, which, hey, you know, it's a hell of a lot easier when you have Aaron Donald uh, down there to help, uh, you know, uh, put the number advantage uh, back on your side. But the more you can just keep too high, not put your corners on an island, not give that quarterback the clear pre-snap match, up where you just know, you know, see what side the safety is rotating to and throw it the other way. When you can make things that much more difficult on them, you know, it really does become a problem. So I'm excited to see what uh, Washington does this year because I think they're in a unique position uh, like the Rams where they have such a great defensive line that I think they'll be able to control line of scrimmage and just put more resources in their secondary. I thought they were missing a number one corner like Jackson. And for them to get him, I mean, man, oh man, he's going to enjoy uh, having that kind of pass rush in front of him compared to what he was dealing with in Cincinnati. Yeah, I'm with you. We're very excited to have William Jackson the third In studying corners, where would you say Jackson ranks? Just like off the top of your head, is he a top 10 corner, top 15, top 20? What do you think is the right way to look at it? I think top 15 and maybe top 10 if I got down to the nitty-gritty. I think he's similar to James Bradbury, where even though we see him get burnt from time to time, you know, Odo Beckham got him pretty good with a double move early on uh, last season. Uh, Amari Cooper, I think, got him pretty good on the goal line at another point. But you just see him competing with the number one receivers and really making life difficult on him. So, you know, it's not, it's not always the easiest, uh, you know, assignment when you've got to track these number one guys. And I think they deserve the benefit of the doubt a little bit when they're asked to do so. I mean, a Dory Jackson, for example, is someone now on the Giants where, yeah, you know, Antonio Brown went for three touchdowns against him a couple of years ago. People just kind of get the impression that he sucks when he can't, uh, you know, match up against some of the league's best receivers. And at the end of the day, you got to be pretty damn good to warrant your coach giving you that matchup in the first place. So, you know, it, the, the best big thing, we look at the cornerbacks, and there's only, I think, uh, in the study I was doing, I looked at the guys with at least five shadow matchups since 2019, and there was only, uh, Let's see. Yeah, there's only 28 players in the sample size. So it's just something that we don't see a ton across the league. And even some guys like, uh, you know, Yair Alexander, uh, Jair Alexander, excuse me, like arguably the single best quarterback in the league last year, they stopped using him to shadow after week seven because it just made more sense for their defense to leave him on his side. So it's a, again, very fun. I do think it's one of the few uh, true one-on-one matchups we get, and that's why it's fun to analyze. Uh, just something we shouldn't necessarily put a ton of stock in year on year out. We're talking Washington football team with Pro Football Focus lead fantasy football analyst Ian Harditz. So another recent article of relevance to the Washington football team that you wrote was in fact specific to the Washington football team headline, what should we expect from Terry McLaurin and Curtis Samuel in the Fitzmagic era? That question or some version of that question has been a big topic in the D.C. area this offseason. What say you? Will Ryan Fitzpatrick bring to Washington the explosive plays that the team has been sorely lacking. I think so, man, because Ryan Fitzpatrick for the past three years has been anyone's idea of a borderline great quarterback. I know he's been boomer bust throughout his career, but just zooming in again on this 2018, 2019, 2020, particularly from a fantasy perspective, he's been nothing short of lights out. And even if you're not super big into fantasy football, like just realize the scoring is through yards, touchdowns, interceptions. It's a good cumulative stat, even if you don't, you know, necessarily uh, grind it every single day like uh, like myself and some other degenerates do. But anyway. 2018-2019 
2018, Jameis Winston was suspended the first three weeks. Fitz was the QB1 during that stretch. In 2019, Josh Rosen and him were in this weird competition thing for the first six weeks. That ended in week seven. Rest of the way, only Lamar Jackson scored more fantasy points than Fitz. And then 2020, before quote-unquote losing his job to Tua, anyone that watched the Dolphins games knew that Fitz was out playing Tua the entire year. He was the QB8 in weeks one through six. Now with Washington, I realize Rivera isn't naming a starter just yet, which that's great. Promote competition. I, I get it. Don't pull a Matt Nagy and say, you know, we're not starting Justin Fields, even if there's a fire type of uh, situation. So <laughs> I think that's fine. But when you look at the rest of the depth chart, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, you know, Taysom Hill, Doppelganger, Stephen Montez, I just don't think any of those guys are going to be legit competition for Fitz if he continues to play this well. It, when the past, when he's gotten benched, it was the ex, you know, number one overall pick, Jameis Winston, former top 10 pick, Josh Rosen, former number Number five pick Tua. Like these organizations had every reason to try to see what they could get out of these guys. Now Fitz has a team that, you know, if he can win the job, he can win the job. He's trying to lead them to contention. So it's an exciting time for him. And again, if we just see the same player that we've seen for the past three years, it's going to be awfully exciting because it's not like those Dolphin teams were, you know, overflowing with competent weapons to throw to. And Devontae Parker's fine. Mike Gesicki does good things. Preston Williams is okay when he's not hurt. But putting Fitz with Terry, Curtis Samuel, Logan Thomas, Antonio Gibson, and some of these guys that got around him, it's a, it's a very exciting time. And, you know, Fitzpatrick, in my opinion, is the premier late-round quarterback in fantasy football this year. Wow. I mean, Fitzpatrick is such an interesting case study. When you look at Fitzpatrick through the prism of Pro Football Focus's overall grades, he has had the three best seasons of his career over the last three seasons. He has peaked in his age 36, age 37, and age 38 seasons. Do you expect this to continue? Do you anticipate a quality age 39 season from Ryan Fitzpatrick? Yeah, man. The one thing I try to look at when kind of predicting these quarterbacks' demise, like if you remember Peyton, I mean, at the end of 2014, the 2015 season where they won the Super Bowl, you know, good on him for getting that ring. He, uh, I think he deserved to have his defense carry him for once after what he went through in all those years in Indy. But you can just see his arm strength fall off a cliff at the end of 2014. I think Drew Brees gave us similar signs. I haven't seen anything about that with Fitz. I mean, Fitz made like the best throw of the season last year in week 15 against the Raiders when he's gotten his helmet ripped to the side. and He still found a way to put it down the sideline. So, you know, Fitz, we see him all these, you know, practice videos, shout out to the Washington football team, social media, uh, you know, account on Twitter. I think they're fantastic. And the guy's just loving his life and everything just seems to be going good with him. So, hey, you know, if week one, week two comes around, we see a different player, I'll be forced to adjust and, you know, I'll be wrong in this conversation we're having right now, which is based on what we've seen in recent history. I don't have any reason to believe he's about to fall off a cliff. You are correct, by the way. The Washington football team's Twitter game has stepped up big time over the last year or so. So you are a Buckeyes fan. Uh, you tell me, is Terry McLaurin a top 10 receiver in the NFL? I say yes, and yes, I am biased. But to me, especially when you consider the quarterbacks who McLaurin has had throwing to him over his first two NFL seasons, I don't see how you don't have McLaurin as a top 10 receiver. It is wild, man. He actually comes in as my number 11 guy in fantasy. So he's right down the borderline. You know, I, I won't disagree with the, uh, with that statement, but you said it and he is really turning into, uh, you know, his generation. Him and Alan Robinson are pretty close in age, but Alan Robinson and before him, Andre Johnson, just the poster child of having awful QBs. And, you know, thank God he is getting Fitz Magic to throw him the ball a little bit. I mean, having to go through Case Keenum, Colt McCoy, Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, Taylor Heineke, Alex Smith. I mean, sheesh, man, just not 
not a great group. But I'm just really and look, we saw him just dominate last year when he got anything resembling competent quarterback play. Playing through two high ankle sprints at the end of the year, absolutely ridiculous. You know what a warrior. But the really just exciting part of fantasy is what Fitzpatrick has done for his number one receiver over the years. I mean, you guys. Think about the second contracts he's got, guys. Stevie Johnson, Brandon Marshall with the Jets, Devontae Parker. And if you look at it, he's had eight seasons with double-digit starts. In those years, his number one wide receiver has had target totals of 128, 128, 137, 134, 141, 146, 148, and even one time, 173. Wow. So, and fantasy football, man, it's all about chasing the volume. Again, Terry, I won't disagree with you when you say he's, uh, you know, top 10 most talented receiver in the league. We just want volume more than anything because it's a lot easier to predict things like that than it is, you know, these matchups and talent discrepancies and things of that nature. So, Terry, he has the talent of a wide receiver one and he has the workload seemingly of a wide receiver one. I think we'll just have ourselves a wide receiver one at the end of this year. Sounds like you're very bullish when it comes to the Washington football team's offense. Very good to hear that. In terms of skill position players other than Terry McLaurin, who do you like? Who are you really optimistic with? You know, you have Curtis Samuel, you have Logan Thomas, you have Antonio Gibson, you have J.D. McKissick. Is there one guy who stands out from that bunch or are there maybe two guys or more who stand out from that bunch? I'm excited for Curtis Samuel. I think I'm a little bit ahead of uh, consensus on him. I have him as, you know, kind of my wide receiver 36, which is right there at the bottom of uh, the wide receiver three range. Usually just do 12 per tier. And uh, yeah, I just think that him going to this offense with Scott Turner, who obviously, uh, you know, was with him in Carolina is huge because Curtis, you know, a lot of people look at his 2019 season. He was supposed to break out then, and uh, he didn't. But that was honestly – and hey, maybe Kyle Allen's gotten better, but, man, he just was not ready to be a professional quarterback, in my opinion, in 2019. Constant overthrows, even though Samuel was wide open downfield. It was rough. And then last year, he comes back in Carolina, shows what he can do as more of a low-average target depth slot guy, even lines up in the backfield. Still only 24 years old, I believe. The guy can just do everything you want him to. And whenever they get the ball in his hands, good things happen. So I just think, you know, in another offense where we weren't sure if they'd know how to use him right, I'd be a little more concerned. But again, that familiarity with Turner, I think, will be huge for Curtis Samuel. And then Antonio Gibson is someone that, you know, if you're in a fantasy draft, this guy slides in the second round. Scoop him up and don't think twice about it. Had the uh, privilege of actually having him on the PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. So you can check out that interview on the july 9th edition and i was just happy to hear man that he says his toes 100 percent, and that he's also going to be deployed more as a wide receiver this year i mean it makes sense they wanted him to focus on just being a running back in uh 2020 and we actually saw that in christian mccaffrey's rookie year as well i'm not saying gibson's going to get 400 touches like mccaffrey you know is capable of getting uh every single year i think jd mckissick will still be involved to an extent, but man, like the true ceiling for Gibson is being the DC version of uh, CMC. So I'm excited to see what he can do if they give him that sort of run. Because you know, when he was out there last year, and any of our PFF, you know, statistics, force missed tackles, yards after contact, all that stuff, he was a top ten running back. And this was after only having 33 carries in college. So it seems like the ceiling is the roof for Gibson heading into 2021. Very exciting to think about what Antonio Gibson can be for Washington in 2021. I want to lean some more into your Buckeyes fandom. Chase Young versus Nick Bosa versus Joey Bosa. How does Chase compare with the Bosa brothers? So Chase Young, absolutely spectacular. I will say, though, his rookie year, 
I think because of their play, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I do wonder if you know Bosa is just. I, I think we know you know their political history and all that, and I think a lot of people don't exactly give them the credit they're due necessarily on uh, social media and all that. But like Nick Bosa literally doubled Chase Young's pressures when they were both rookies. Like his Nick Bosa's rookie season was one of the best rookie seasons we've ever seen from a defensive lineman. So Chase Young was spectacular, but he just wasn't in the same category as Nick Bosa somehow. And that's not an indictment on Chase. It's just Nick was that freaking good. But it seems like Chase is right on his way uh, to being their man. I mean, I remember when he came to Ohio State originally, he was out there as a freshman, sophomore, uh, you know, playing alongside these guys. But it wasn't until uh, Nick Bosa actually, I think he tore his abdominal, it was some nasty injury in that TCU game uh, his last season in Columbus. That's when Chase really started to rise to the occasion. So, hey, right now, they just need him to be himself because you got Montez Sweat, uh, you know, Allen and uh, Payne are also on the defensive line, just riddled, uh, you know, with these former first-round picks. He doesn't even have to be the world-breaker that we know he is yet. He's already close, again, not trying to take anything away from, from the guy. But right now, I would give the Bosa's just a slight edge, but, you know, we'll see if that's still the case at the end of 2021 because, as we know, uh, Chase Young's still a young guy and seems like he's only uh, scraping the surface of what he's capable of. And I might as well ask it, having watched Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State, were you surprised with what happened with him ultimately with Washington or not really? I mean, look, he was objectively an awful quarterback when he was there. I just didn't really like the way he seemed he kind of got dragged through the mud a little bit while the whole thing was going on. Should he have gone to the strip club when he did? Of course not. I'm just saying, no, there are far worse human beings in the professional football league than Dwayne Haskins. And, you know, for him to be just a 24-year-old guy trying to make do, again, not not a bad person, but yeah, we got some leaks from the locker room about him caring about stats and stuff, but it's like, why is this only locker room having these leaks uh, seemingly around the league? So, you know, I just think he wasn't exactly given this great uh, sense to succeed. I mean, the dude threw for over 300 yards against the freaking Ravens. I know they lost in some, but it was in mop-up time, but I, I don't know, man. I just thought he wasn't treated quitely, uh, quite as fair as I would have preferred in the media and the after effect, but that's certainly the homer uh, coming out of me there. So, it is what is I hope I wish him the best with the Steelers and would just say you know to anyone kind of calling him you know and he has been a bust uh you know we can call a spade a spade with that but I would just say you know remember he is only 24 and there are far worse people in the league you can uh, choose to pick on if you want to do so yeah I mean Dwayne does have talent I've always thought that uh it was a messed up situation that he came into in terms of the head coach at the time Jay Gruden not wanting Dwayne and Dwayne having been handpicked by the owner Dan Snyder. But with Haskins, he was basically handed the QB1 job for 2020, and he didn't put in the work. I mean, this is widely known at this point. He showed up late for meetings. He did not prepare the way that Ron Rivera wanted Dwayne to prepare off an offseason in which Ron constantly talked about Dwayne needing to be more of a leader. So Dwayne failed. But I do think it is fair to say that Dwayne also came into a situation that was really screwed up. I just wonder, man, like you go back and look at every single quarterback that's been in the Washington football organization in the last 20 plus years. Like, really, has every single one of those guys been bad or is this something? 
do with you know the organization's ability to develop them. <laughs> yeah. We've all seen you know we've all seen the Cleveland Browns uh, jersey where they have just every single name crossed out and like yeah I understand none of those guys are Patrick Mahomes, but there is something to be said about a team's you know ability to develop these guys. So you know did, did Dwayne make the most out of his opportunity? Obviously not. Uh, I just hope that you know maybe his second chance with the Steelers goes better. Well, Ian, it's great to talk to you. It's great to get your perspective. Uh, love the content and continued success, man. Thank you so much, man. You as well. And, uh, you know, happy July. And we got the preseason coming up, and our jobs will be a lot more busy. But always good to talk ball uh, in these downtimes. Well, how about the tennis news for the nation's capital on Thursday? Yes, I said tennis. It took until episode 99, but we are talking tennis on the Al Galdi podcast. Remember, this is a DC sports podcast, so if there's major news regarding DC sports, I talk about it. And on Thursday, we got the announcement that one of the biggest stars in tennis history, Rafael Nadal, will be playing in the 2021 City Open, which is going to take place at Rock Creek Park Tennis Center in Washington, D.C. from July 31st to August 8th. Rafa is coming to D.C. He is the number three ranked men's tennis player in the world. Now, personally, there's a part of me that wonders if Nadal is actually going to end up playing in the event. If you know your Rafa history, you know that he has dealt with injury in his career, a lot of injury. Nadal has not played competitive tennis since losing to Novak Djokovic in the semis of the French Open in June. Nadal decided to not play in Wimbledon or in the Tokyo Olympics due to his body needing rest. So let's see if Nadal actually ends up posting at the City Open. But him committing to the tournament is big news and great news. I'm very happy for the City Open. The City Open has been around for 50 plus years. What became the City Open started as a men's event in 1969. This thing's been around for a while. The event became a women's event as well, beginning in 2011. The tournament has been known as the Washington Star International, was known as that from 1969 through 1981. Then it was the Sovereign Bank Classic from 1982 through 1992. Then the event was the Newsweek Tennis Classic in 1993. Then the event was the Leg Mason Tennis Classic from 1994 through 2011. And the event has been the City Open since 2012. And some big-time stars have won the men's singles tournament at what is now the City Open. The City Open in recent years has gained the reputation for having a lot of, like, second-tier tennis stars. And honestly, that's what a lot of tennis is now, uh, second-tier stars. But listen to some of the winners of the men's singles tournament at the event over the years. Arthur Ashe in 1973. Jimmy Connors in 1976, 78, and 88. Yvonne Lendl in 1982 and 87. Andre Agassi in, get this, 1990, 91, 95, 98, and 99. Agassi has won this thing five times, all in the 90s. Nobody owned the 90s. Nobody says 90s like Andre Agassi. And Andy Roddick, uh, he won the event in 2001, 2005, and 2007. So Agassi, a five-time winner of the event. Roddick and Connors, each a three-time winner of the event. Lendl, a two-time winner of the event. I mean, some notable names here over the years have won what is now the City Open. The City Open is known as a U.S. Open tune-up event. And yes, Rafa is coming. Uh, Look, he's not peak Rafa, but he is still Rafa. 
And he's still part of the big three. Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, and Novak Djokovic. Nadal tied with Roger Federer for the most all-time men's Grand Slam tournament singles titles at 20. Novak Djokovic is number three at 19. And each guy has had such a run, and each guy has had his Grand Slam event, right? Nadal, men's record, 13 French Open singles titles. Federer, men's record, 8 Wimbledon singles titles. Djokovic, men's record, 9 Australian Open titles. And each guy has continued to get it done well into his 30s. Tennis is a sport in which so many people are done at like, you know, 25. I mean, professional tennis has always cracked me up. You're old in like your mid-20s, but Nadal turned 35 on June 3rd. Federer will turn 40 on August 8th. Djokovic turned 34 on May 22nd. Now, here's a killer reality for the City Open. Limited capacity. Yes, limited capacity. If you thought that we were done with this stuff, you're wrong. Uh, The announcement of Rafael Nadal being a part of the 2021 City Open comes as there remains a capacity limit of just 50% for the 2021 City Open due to guidance from the National Park Services as the tournament, remember, is operated at Rock Creek Park Tennis Center. The event on its website does note that there is the possibility of a partial or complete lifting of the capacity restriction, but for now, 50% capacity. That's it. I mean, we have had 100% capacity allowed at Nationals Park since June 10th, but for an event that will take place from July 31st to August 8th, a mere 50% capacity. We have had no evidence that sporting events, especially those outdoors, lead to a spread of COVID-19 in the communities in which the events take place. And yet, for the 2021 City Open, a mere 50% capacity. We have had, per the data on WashingtonPost.com as of late Thursday night, more than 158.3 million people who have been fully vaccinated for COVID-19 in the United States. And yet, for the 2021 City Open, 50% capacity. Uh, Whatever, man. But this is a really cool deal. The announcement that Rafael Nadal will play in the 2021 City Open. Great news. Uh, We are lucky in the D.C. area to have what we have. An NFL team, an MLB team, an NBA team, an NHL team, major college basketball and football, an MLS team, a WNBA team, a legit tennis event. For years, we had a PGA Tour event, right? We had the Kemper Open slash Kemper Insurance Open slash FBR Capital Open slash Booz Allen Classic. Uh, The event had about a million names uh, at either Congressional Country Club in Bethesda, Maryland, or TPC at Avenel in Potomac, Maryland from 1980 through 2006. We then had Tiger Woods' tournament, the AT&T National slash Quicken Loans National uh, at Congressional TPC Potomac at Avenel Farm in Potomac, Maryland, or Robert Trent Jones Golf Club in Gainesville, Virginia, essentially from 2007 through 2018. Uh, the event did take place at Aronaman Golf Club in Pennsylvania in 2010 and 2011, but Tiger won the event here uh, in the area in 2009 and 2012. You know, it's cool and it's fun to be cynical and snarky when it comes to D.C. area sports. I'm certainly guilty of that, Uh, but we do have it pretty good in the D.C. area when it comes to what's available to us in terms of sports. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody.
Yes, yes. Happy Thanksgiving, Danny. Ah, you see, there's that cynicism. There's that snark. Come on, Galdi. Why'd you have to play that? We had a feel-good moment for at least a moment on the Al Galdi podcast. Can't you just be nice for one segment? Can you not be a jerk for just one segment? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. Yeah, I think we're all getting a little loopy here on a summer Friday, especially off having been up late again on Thursday night, uh, watching the Nats blow it at the San Diego Padres, and then for some of us having to record multiple podcasts. But anyway, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Al Galdi podcast, if you would like for the power of the pod to work for you to help you grow your practice or business. The weekend, always a good time to catch up on anything that you may have missed. Monday's show, episode 96, included my chat with Ben Lindsay, analyst for Pro Football Focus, on his rankings of NFL rosters, including ranking the Washington football team as having the league's number 12 roster of having been at number 31 last year. Wednesday's show, episode 97, featured my conversation with Neil Mullen, a lawyer who practiced labor and employment law for three-plus decades. He is an adjunct professor at George Mason's Antonin Scalia Law School. Neil gave us a deep dive on the legal aspects of the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the Washington football team's workplace. Vacation week next week, but yes, with vacation in quotation marks. So I'll be doing three shows as opposed to the usual five, barring nothing major happening. But plan on shows next week for Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And don't forget, I next week begin my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team as we start our countdown to training camp. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday on what will be episode 100. But they are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.